Just a quick warning, the episode you're about to hear contains strong language. Campsite Media. Welcome to Infamous, a production of Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment. I'm Vanessa Grigoriadis. Thank you for listening to our show. Today, we're talking to an old friend of mine who was in a scandal himself with Harvey Weinstein, one of the most infamous men in America. Now, this scandal does not involve the serious crimes you're thinking of. Let me introduce you to Andrew Goldman, help you get to know him, and then we'll move on to Harvey. Okay, so so you're in New York. You're working at the New York Observer. Can you explain what that is? It was um, a, a full-of-attitude uh, newspaper that was run then by this incredibly charismatic editor named Peter Kaplan. Generally, the marching orders were to go out and uh, make some noise and to be funny and to be snarky. So what were so you writing about? I was kind of doing features and stringing for their scene-slash-gossip column called The Transom. I do want to um, just explicate this bizarre job that both and you and I seem to have had, being sent into these parties with rich and famous people, not having to like stick out your tape recorder and get like a second from Kim Kardashian, actually having to put a gown on. Like I had two gowns that I had to wear in order to go to the Rockefeller estate. You know, it's how fancy of you to actually have your own gown because when I was at the Observer, we had an Observer tuxedo that was, so stinky and smelly, but anybody who had to go uh, to uh, one of these events would wear this thing, and you'd find like you know a crudité in the pocket. It was like a, a communal, a communal poorly fitting tuxedo. I went to a party that was a celebration of Kathy and Rick Hilton's anniversary, and there were no seats available for me, except for one. The one seat available was between Imelda Marcos and Leona Helmsley. I just, I was so, I was like basically immediately had this flop sweat. I was like, I cannot sit between the two most famously mean people in America right now. Imelda Marcos, who was, um, uh, had been married to Ferdinand Marcos, he was one of these um, dictators from the Philippines who had basically robbed the Philippines of billions. And Imelda became very famous because uh, she had a, a closet filled with thousands and thousands of pairs of designer shoes, like, you know, probably millions of dollars worth of shoes. So her closet became the big joke and her shoes became the big joke. And then of course, Leona Helmsley, uh, I think that Leona Helmsley might have been known as the queen of mean. She was a, a hotelier when Leona Helmsley died, um, which was probably 15 years ago. Uh, she left all of her money to this ridiculous like lapdog. Trouble, yeah. it's the pampered pooch who oh, inherited yeah, $12 million. Dollars. <laughs> yes. yeah. Anyway, so there are a few stories that I can dine out on. One of them is the Harvey Weinstein story. Another one would have been my dinner with the queen of mean and the queen of shoes. Okay, so tell me what happened. So this was in the year 2000. I was frequently covering parties for the transom. However, um, 
I had a younger colleague uh, who I was actually dating at the time, named Rebecca Traster, who was doing a a film column. She was doing really great work on uh, these these stories on independent film in New York. And and at that moment, basically the king of New York independent cinema was Harvey Weinstein. He'd created something that didn't exist before, which was a real bona fide studio uh, in Tribeca, which was called Miramax. Um, and he and his brother had built it from nothing and, you know, had had this string of Oscar-winning hits like Shakespeare in Love. My heart belongs to you, but I will marry Wessex a week from Saturday. Goodwill Hunting. The most gifted mind to ever enter its classrooms. Who did this? Is the person who cleans its floors. Rebecca had been working on a story and it had been trying to get either Bob or Harvey Weinstein or somebody within Miramax to speak to her for this story. And she Why was Why would they not to want it. to talk to her? It sounds totally promotional. Uh, well, because of the story that she was writing. It was a story that they did not want to have written. You know, Rebecca was trying to report a story about a movie called O. And I believe that there were some scenes of extreme violence, including a school shooting in, in the film. Yo, it's in my head up. Now somebody here knows the truth. Somebody needs to tell the truth. If he comes at me again, I swear I'll kill him. The filmmakers, like many filmmakers who worked with Miramax, were unhappy. I mean, Harvey was, his nickname was Harvey Scissorhands because he would personally go in and uh, chop films up and re-edit them. In the case of O, I believe the filmmakers were very upset because Harvey was actually sitting on it and not releasing it. And there was a very specific reason Harvey was not releasing it. Now, this was election season, and this, this is going to blow your mind. Harvey, at that point, was a huge fundraiser for the Democratic Party. And he, he had been doing major Hollywood uh, fundraisers for the Gore-Lieberman campaign. So uh, I don't know how delusional this was. I mean, there are people who, you know, get get ambassador posts who are unqualified. Um, but he, Harvey at that moment, and I've heard from many people, legitimately felt like his work was going to make him ambassador to Israel. So, Oh, God. Okay. Yeah. So he had... Uh, he had been doing everything he could to to flatter, to raise money for uh, the ticket. And Joe Lieberman was somebody, one of his pet issues was violence in films. He felt like it was poisoning our children. What do you do with a troubled person before they become a killer? What about the impact of violence in the entertainment culture? So Harvey Weinstein, the story goes, and, you know, Rebecca had done a pretty good job of reporting it by that point. Harvey Weinstein was sitting on this film because he thought that it would offend Joe Lieberman, the release of this film, because it, because it was a violent film. So Rebecca had for, for you know, uh, days, if not weeks, been trying to get somebody at Miramax to comment, you know, some official comment as to why they were burying this film. And there was this invite that came for a party at the Tribeca Grand Hotel hosted by Harvey Weinstein. Um, and so it allowed me to bring her to a party that otherwise she wouldn't have been invited to. And she could actually go up to the man himself and ask him the question. We're going to do a break and then we'll share what happened when Andrew got to Harvey Weinstein's party. Because this is the serious altercation that I referenced at the top of the episode. You're listening to Infamous from Campside Media. So now, Rebecca and Andrew are at a party that Harvey Weinstein is throwing. It's actually a party for a book written by a woman who had overcome cancer. 
But this is where Rebecca is planning to buttonhole Harvey about shelving the movie O, which was a violent movie. And Harvey hadn't wanted to piss off Joe Lieberman because he thought if Al Gore and Joe Lieberman won the presidency, Harvey might be appointed ambassador to Israel. I think we walked in right behind Harvey, and I was like, this is great. So I remember going up to the bar uh, and ordering a vodka on the rocks. And then I watched Rebecca go up and and approach Harvey uh, with her little tape recorder and uh, put it up. And uh, I see them going, sort of talking. I see them talking, talking. And then at some point, it seemed to be coming more animated from his end. And then I remember distinctly saying, him shouting to those around him, who let this fucking cunt into this party? Who let this fucking cunt into this party? And I just about dropped my drink and I, he was raving, this is a cancer party, this is a cancer party, and this is the shit that she's asking me about. And so at that point, I felt like maybe uh, I had some obligation to intercede <laughs> Uh, because, uh, because you were the guy who had let her into the party. (laughs) Uh, so, uh, it was obviously shocking to me because this was something that was happening in view of, I would say dozen or dozens of reporters were there. And this is basically, uh, you know, the biggest figure, uh, in, in, uh, New York film. And one of the biggest figures in film in the country using the C word about, uh, probably a 20, 21, 22-year-old young woman who was just trying to do her job. So I stepped up to where they were, and I think I said, Harvey, and I introduced myself, and I said, I invited her to this party. And then I tried to de-escalate because he said, why aren't you fucking interviewing me about this party? And I said, okay. I took out my tape recorder, and I said, all right, let's talk about this party. And so we start talking about the cancer party. And I guess I, I, I guess it was just killing me that, that he'd made this scene and said that horrible thing to this person. And, you know, Rebecca at this point was, you know, standing back a bit while I was interviewing him about the inane details of the party. And, um, and I think I stopped the interview and I said, I just have to, I have to address this. That was really, that was unacceptable. How could, why would you say something like that? Why would you do that? And then, and then I think he said, I'm going to kick your fucking ass. And then he uttered the line, I'm glad I'm the fucking sheriff of this shit-ass fucking town. What a, what a line. You know, as I would find out, there was some truth to that. But uh, I looked down to see if my recorder is indeed going. Because this is the money quote of all money quotes. So uh, I looked down, and I think he looked down and realized what he'd just done and realized that he'd said something really, really stupid that might come back to haunt him. And at this point, he lunged from my tape recorder. And what happened then was this match between the two of us. Now, remember, you know, as two, like, very kind of fat bears, like, both of us, it's both hands up in the air. One has a tape recorder, and we're going back and forth. Both of our hands are crass, grasping each other's, and he's trying to get this tape recorder, and I'm doing everything I can not to allow him to have my tape recorder. And as, I, as I'll as i find out later, apparently, uh, while we were going back and forth over the tape recorder, uh, there were some people in the crowd, and one person uh, apparently got hit by the tape recorder. I wasn't gonna let go of my tape recorder and Harvey was intent on getting it. 
Oh my god. I love (laughs) what I mean, so you why do you have to protect the tape recorder? Let it go. Well, first of all, it's my tape it's my tape recorder. There's no right to take my tape recorder. Second of all, I really think that it is like a valuable quote to have. You know, at that point, only at that point, probably did I think, well, this might be the best story that I've ever come across. I happen to be in the middle of it, but I mean, I've gotten the best quote ever. And I have an account of one of the most famous people in movie land physically assaulting a reporter. I happen to be the reporter and in the story, but this is a pretty good story. So I'm not letting go of this tape recorder. And he's intent on getting the tape recorder. And what I remember, I don't remember exactly how it happened. He shifted from the tape recorder to my head and he grabs me by the head and dragged me by the head out of the party. I know that I was in front of the Tribeca Grand Hotel, Harvey Weinstein holding me in a headlock. Just Uh, gripping you with this beefy, doughy arm. His beefy, yeah, with those sausage fingers and his beefy arm. And I, I seem to remember being Unable to move, unable to free myself. I don't know what would have happened if I'd actually punched him. I think that if somebody has you in a headlock, you probably should make some sort of defensive maneuvers. I had no defensive maneuvers in my in my arsenal at that point. I was not a fighter. I did not soil myself, although I thought that, I think that Peter Biskind, uh, the, the film writer, I think that when he wrote about it, uh, witnesses describe me as looking as though I were soiling myself. But I'd like to have it on record that I did not shit my pants. Although I felt like I could have shit my pants. Uh, there are people surrounding. There is, uh, you know, one of these people I knew was a photographer from uh, one of the local tabloids, the Daily News. And I am in a headlock in front of the Tribeca Grand Hotel. And this man from the Daily News has probably shot 300 frames of me in a headlock. And one of the things I'm thinking as I'm like, oh gosh, I'm gonna be on the cover of a tabloid. I mean, who who could pass up this picture of Harvey Weinstein with this person in the headlock? This is going to be, you know, this is tabloid gold. And so one of the things that, one of the very, very, very absurd things I remember about this thing was that I, I seem to remember being in a headlock for a really kind of crazy period of time, so long, that I was able from my pocket to fish out a card which I handed to the Daily News photographer just so he could identify me. While you're in the headlock? While I was, yes, it's it's unreal to even think about how that could have happened, but I think that there was some sort of stalemate where he had me in the headlock, I was unable to get out of it. Uh, it was, you know, this probably took all of 14 seconds, but it was very, very strange. So the Tribeca Grand was a place that he, he, you know, he kept, I think, a suite where he would go and we would subsequently find out do horrible things to young actresses. Uh, So he was well known at the Tribeca Grand Hotel. So we were separated and that was the end of it. He had tried to mobilize the security. They were, he said, get that tape recorder from him. Uh, And they, to their credit, refused to do it. And uh, I thought it was probably best to leave. And then uh, much of it's quite hazy, except for you know us kind of like walking down the avenue after being like, what just happened? Stick around to hear the rest of the story after the break. This is Infamous from Campside Media. I think we were somewhat traumatized a little you know, giddy as one would be when something so fucking bizarre happens. And it was something that I didn't fully comprehend at that time was that um, 
I witnessed what real power in New York was because there was no story. There was no photograph in the Daily News, the New York Post, any any other New York tabloid. Um, there was no immediate story from anywhere. And there were many Harvey-friendly journalists, one in particular who I think was working at Fox News at the time, who I think was trying to encourage Harvey to let me go. Um, and I assumed that he would write about it. Um, but he, like many other people in town, had um, entanglements with Harvey. Harvey was very good, actually, at um, offering deals, whether they were script writing deals or you know documentary production deals. He, he would throw money around to, to neutralize local press, and that's what he had done. Much of the press that was in 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 the room that night had either already been neutralized, or in the case of the photographer, I think that photographer probably, if I had to guess is in his retirement spending money that he made from Harvey Weinstein to buy all those photos that night. Uh, none of those photos I, I, I heard years later from somebody who actually worked with Harvey and within Miramax that there was a location within Miramax where these photos actually existed. And this person said that he or she had actually seen these photos and told me that I was probably glad that these photos didn't get out because they were they were kind of unflattering. And knowing what, knowing how I was, it was a particular period of bloat that I had at that point. Got it. Uh, and then what and did then you it, decide to do? What did I decide to do? Uh, well, let's see. What did we decide to do? I decided to do nothing. Um, and uh, I assumed that it was going to be a story um, in the New York Observer. Uh, incorrectly. I don't know. Would you have assumed that you wouldn't have been able to write about it? No, I would have assumed that this was like my big break and maybe even been like sort of excited, unfortunately. <laughs> but Yeah. I mean, I think that there was probably some assumption that we would, you know, that she and I would, would do some sort of account of it in the paper. And, you know, Peter was the most charismatic editor I've ever worked for. I don't know what was behind his decision, but it wasn't advertising because New York Observer was not filled with advertising. But I think Peter Peter had, um, I think, probably respect for some of the major characters in New York and had probably was on first name basis with Harvey um, and probably thought um, from knowing me a little bit that maybe I'd done something to, to start a fight with him, which wasn't the case. I mean, I really, you know, I felt like I behaved honorably that night. I did not go into a party trying to start a fight with Harvey Weinstein, but for whatever reason, um, Peter decided that we weren't going to write about it. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a second. How is this not a story? It's one of the great unanswered questions. I think that there was a certain respect conferred upon Harvey. This Now, this is Harvey. We have to remember, this is... You know, we had heard uh, rumors of, of Harvey's sexual behavior, but Harvey was on top of the world. Harvey was much respected as a, a, a uh, you know, a mogul in the old style. Peter was somebody who really had this uh, amazing understanding and great respect for the history of Hollywood. I think Peter thought that he was, that Harvey was like a Louis B. Mayer style giant. 
Um, mm -hmm. And he was in, I remember him saying Harvey, Harvey is like, I think he said Harvey's an immovable object or something like that. But Harvey was something, somebody that the paper was going to have to, in perpetuity, do business with. And when I say do business, I mean like, you know, cover his films. I don't mean that there was any kind of financial impropriety. But, you know, Harvey was somebody that, that the paper was going to have to deal with for the foreseeable future. And having uh, some sort of public fight with him was probably going to create more trouble than it was worth for him. Now, that's just, we never had actually a specific conversation. That is what I, that's my hypothesis about how he thought about it. Uh, I don't hold it against him. I love Peter. But what was sort of shocking was um, what happened after, because I was given the directive not to speak to media about it. But I think the following day, um, Paula Froelich, who was working for uh, Richard Johnson, uh, who ran Page Six, probably one of the preeminent sort of gossip columns in existence. You know, it was, it was a much bigger deal then than it is now. But I was started getting calls from Paula who said, Richard is reporting this out and Miramax is framing this as you somehow having attacked, um, gone in and been the aggressor on this. You've got to do something about this. My mind was blown. I was like, how could they possibly, how could they possibly frame this as us being the aggressors in this situation? And, you know, in the post-Trump, it's sort of easy to understand how stuff like this happens. Then it wasn't quite so easy. But I think at that point, I realized after having done nothing that my only defense was to actually get it on record. And uh, so I went to the, to the nearest police precinct and said, I want to report that I was attacked last night by Harvey Weinstein. Um, they did not arrest him, but he was aware that I'd filed a police report, which changed things, I think, from the, the Miramax perspective uh, considerably when they got wind of this. And that was my only defense because I was told I couldn't talk to the press. So what was your takeaway from this as a youngster? So you're watching all youngster, this happening and what are you thinking about New York society? As a youngster, my takeaway take was I really, uh, I, I thought that I was at a, I thought that I was in a business, the media, which valued scoop, uh, which valued um, news. Now, I don't think that I was under the illusion that it valued truth, but I was under the that 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 a great scoop like this would trump any other factors. And what I didn't realize was the raw power that he wielded trumped any of the news interest that anybody would actually have in the real story. That he had enough enough money to spread around, uh, enough people well positioned enough to bury it. After you file the police report, nothing yes. happens, right? The police never go and talk to him. Police don't do anything. Absolutely nothing happened. And he just goes on to rape women just constantly. So how do you think this affected you as a person? It made me somewhat. I, I have to say, um, I think that probably at that point I left the Observer not that long after. I think that. It felt like maybe um, it was time for me to make a transition. It was time for me to get a new job um, somewhere else. Um, and I mean, how did it change your worldview? My eyes were opened to how power actually works in this town. I became much more cynical. Uh, that cynicism has remained with me. And sometimes when you interview people and you actually are asking them about things that they don't feel particularly comfortable about, um, they don't like it. And I think that this was... This might have been the beginning of me trying to, through interviewing, speak truth to power. You know, Harvey was using his power uh, not only to cover up assaults, and I, I think what happened to me was an assault, covering up assaults, but he was covering up rapes. 
um, in, in similar fashion, both by cajoling the press and also, you know, these non-disclosure agreements and, and million and multi-million dollar paydays to, to victims who I think were probably in a position where that was life-changing money and they had to make a decision whether they wanted to go to battle with like the most press savvy, immovable Harvey Weinstein or they wanted to, you know, have a 401k. At that particular moment, Harvey Weinstein was absolutely the sheriff of that shit-ass fucking town. Thanks so much to Andrew Goldman for joining us this week. If you want to hear more of Andrew's stories, he hosts an excellent interview show called The Originals. It's with LA Magazine. He talks to all sorts of old school, interesting characters like Moby, Connie Chung, and James Alroy. Next time on Infamous. Lindsay Lohan spent her first night in jail Tuesday on charges of parole violation relating to a 2007 DUI conviction. People have this image of me that it is chaos. I don't want all of the negative shit. Lindsay's We're gonna get to She's it. She's a hot mess. Hey, what was it like being back on set? Because hey, how long had it been for you? Almost a, well, a long time. 